This morning's sermon test will be Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 to 13. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field of that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, We shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither we shall touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves long cloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, and he said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. How many times have you heard someone say, uh, Why is there so much evil in this world? What's wrong with this world? Why is there so much disease and death and disunity? And you know, perhaps you've asked those questions yourself. I, I, I think they're good questions, actually. I think they're probably the questions that Moses' audience were asking. You know, think about it for a minute. You know, we've been covering these past two chapters in Genesis. Everything has been good. Creation is good. God has made the man and the woman good. He's given them life and meaning and purpose. He sets them in the garden. He gives them a charge to fill and subdue the earth. He has given them provisions to eat and to be cared for. He's given them his presence that they can have access to, to him at any time. He's given them uh, all these things, the Sabbath rest that they were enjoying, he gave to them. I mean, everything was good. And all of a sudden now, what do we have around us? I mean, as they were listening to Moses preach after enslavement, they're thinking, well, what happened? Uh, I mean, it was so good, and now it's so bad. I mean, what happened? Eugene Peterson asks this, or speaks to it this way. He says, a catastrophe has occurred. We are no longer in continuity with our good beginning. 
We've been separated from, from it by a disaster. We're also, of course, separated from our good end. We are, in other words, in the middle of a mess. We're in the middle of a mess. I mean, who made the mess? Now, this is what Genesis 3 is about. This is probably one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible, not just in explaining and understanding how the Bible all fits together, but it helps us understand our world. Why do we have the trouble and the difficulty and hardship? Why is life as it is? Now listen, there's no, other, there's no shortage of other answers that are given to us. I mean, stoicism, of course, was Greek philosophy explaining, you know what, just stiff upper lip. It's a tough life out there. Do the best you can. Epicureanism, Epicureanism is this kind of a hedonism, you know, just seek pleasure. Uh, the best part of Epicureanism is this idea of seeking pleasure in the higher things in life. It can be hedonism. Just seek pleasure in life in general. Or nihilism. Nihilism. Just, you know what? It all is going to end up in the same bucket. It doesn't matter what you do, so do what you need to do and don't worry about anything. All kinds of isms to explain. I think Christianity explains most accurately the experience we have in this world. This idea of a good God sin entering the world, and then him bringing about a redemption of a people for the glory of his name. I think that makes the most sense to the experiences that we have. And so I want to try to cover this whole chapter in one sermon. And I want to try to show you how Christianity explains why do we have a world that we have, and how then do we live in it. And I want, I want you to think about a few things with me. First, there was a tragedy Right? The first sin is, is tragic. That's the simplest way to say it. And we're going to see that in the first six verses. Then we're going to see the consequences of these sins. And that's in 7 to 13. What then is the result of what we've done? And then there is the judgment of God on this sin. And we see that in the balance of the chapter. And then I'm going to try to draw some threads on the hope that we have in the midst of the darkness. So first, the tragedy. The tragedy is the first sin. Now, there's something in hermeneutics called the rule of first. You know, whenever something is mentioned first in the scriptures, you really want to pay attention to it, but because it is not just, it, it usually is, is forming a paradigm for how we're to understand the nature of what's mentioned first. So look with me in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So here they are. We're on the precipice of them beginning their work as male and female. They've been called to fill and subdue the earth. And so the first challenge they meet is this talking snake. And we don't see anything or we don't read of anything about the origins of this snake. We really know nothing about. You know, it, it's, it's definitely gripping our attention, a talking animal, uh, but we don't know anything about this serpent. Later on, we'll know that his name is Satan, but here we don't see anything. But we do see his intention. We see the way, the strategy that he seeks to lead this first couple into this tragedy. He doesn't make them do anything. He just speaks. And the first thing he does is ask a question. You see that in verse 2 where he says, did he really say you cannot eat from any tree in the garden? Now, I think this question is kind of placing a seed of doubt over, A, can you understand the scriptures? Are you sure he said that? Hey, definitely placing some doubt about the truthfulness of scriptures. Can you really believe it? 
But there's more going on here. I think he's not just causing us or leading the couple to doubt the truthfulness of God's word, but the good character of God. That's been the theme through the first two chapters. God is good. But here, notice notice what he says in verse 5. He says, But the serpent said to the woman, "You You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. It's as if he's saying, can you really believe? I mean, why would he not want you to eat all the trees? I mean, what's he holding back from you? There's the implication of malicious intent. You can't really trust a God that is like this. Now, after he places these seeds of doubt in the mind of the male and the female, you don't see anything more of the serpent. He, the, the camera kind of moves and pans and just catches the man and the woman. And Eve begins to see, she says, it is good-looking fruit, and it does look like it'd be good for us, and, and you know it's going to give us what we want, which is that wisdom that we need that he was preventing from us. And so then she, of course, took and, and ate. What's happening here? I, 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 think, I think Moses is trying to help us understand why there is evil in the world. And he's doing this by showing us the heart of temptation. Uh, really, the, the, the essence of sin is a desire to be like God. I think that's the point of the tree. Listen, God gave Adam and Eve full reign, gave them authority, but it wasn't absolute. It wasn't without its limit. That's the purpose of the tree, and that's the pur- purpose of it being in the midst of the garden. The tree is representative of God. He is the sovereign one. He's our creator. And the fact that he called them to rule and subdue was still limited in its authority. So them eating of the fruit is them declaring a rejection of his authority and a desire for autonomy. We want to know what God knows. We want to be like God. We want to write the laws. We want to determine what's right and wrong. We want to draw the lines. So this is kind of the essence of sin, if you will. This, this kind of rejecting God and his full right over all of your lives and establishing ourselves. D- does this change the way you look at sin? Uh, does it give you a little bit better understanding? Most of us can look at sin as kind of lusting or stealing or angering or lying. But, but here we see something more fundamental to us. We see kind of underneath what gives birth to all this sin. All the things that we do that would be labeled sins are coming out of a heart that says, to God, I I don't want you declaring the rules. I want to determine what I want to do. I want to have certain rights over certain parts of my life. I'll give you some parts of my life, God, but but you don't get all of it. You know, A.W. Tozier speaks to us. He says that we're moons, we're not suns. But then he ends with the question, but who wants to be a moon? Nobody wants to be a moon. We want to be sons. We want to determine. In fact, he says this about sin. Sin has many manifestations, but its essence is one. A moral being created to worship before the throne of God sits on the throne of his own selfhood and from the elevated position declares, I am. This is sin in its concentrated essence. Do you see this in your own life? You know, this is called the original sin, but it's only called the original sin because it's with the original couple. It doesn't remain with them. It kind of traces all the way down through their progeny. I mean, don't we all struggle with wanting to do what we want to do when we want to do it? Don't we kind of bow up when someone says, you can't do this? 
Don't we want to then do it? I mean, don't, don't. Anytime anybody says this is prohibited from you, it's like, no, that's the thing I want. G.K. Chesterton speaks about, you know, the, the one Christian doctrine with the most amount of empirical evidence is this doctrine right here. This idea that we want to do what we want. We want to be God. I, I know, I want you to think about that in terms of, of just not wanting to hear no. And think about the folly of this sin. Just think with me for a minute. They had all the trees in the garden, but one. That's the one they wanted. Think about the foolishness of it. But don't you see this? Maybe it, you've been a child. If you've seen children, they will fixate on a certain thing that they want. And then you will tell them, usually for good reasons, that no, you can't have that now. Uh, but that doesn't stop them. So then you generally amp up the threats or the warnings to try to dissuade them from doing what you've just asked them not to do. And yet they pursue that. And you amp it and amp it. Now the first time uh, Katie and I kind of spoke to this issue and trying to give her a no, she did not like the no. And uh, so I tried to begin to amp up the warnings. I was putting more and more stop signs in front of her. I think by the end of it, uh, she was in a room for 20 years. I think that's how high I got. Uh, but but you're, you're looking at the child saying, you're going to lose dessert. You're going to lose this. You're gonna, but they go after that. They, well, they have all these other things, but they want that. Now, it's not just children, it's adults. You, you want to be great in business. And so you, you burn your family down because of working so hard. You ruin other relationships by not giving them the time they need. You ruin your own body because you want that thing. You're willing to lose everything for that thing. We see it in our own lives. This slow disintegration of who we are because we want something. Here's the issue. We don't want limits. We don't like our creatureliness. We don't want to be, you know, that movie Limitless? We all love it. You know, he, he gets what he needs and he can do anything. That's what we want. And yet God hasn't created us that way. But they ran right through all the stop signs. The the beauty of God's image in man is now marred. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He says, we can acknowledge that man has all the marks of a majestic temple about him, a temple in which God once dwelt, but a temple which is now in utter ruins, a temple in which a shadowed window here, a doorway there, a column there, still gives some faint idea of the magnificence of the original design, but a temple which from end to end has lost its glory and fallen from its highest state. That is us. That's the tragedy of sin, of saying no to God as he has set up the parameters of his creation. Well, what are the consequences? Well, the consequences are significant. Look with me at 7 and 8. At 7 and 8 he says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, God among the trees of the garden. This is just tragic. You see these consequences. Think about it for a minute, just even from last week. Before sin, they were naked and unashamed. Now they're naked and they're filled with shame. Before sin, they were open, they were transparent, there was a freedom, but now they're scared, they're hiding, they're covering themselves. 
uh, before sin, they enjoyed God. They walked with God in the cool day. But now they're scared. They hear His presence and they run and hide. They hide from the terror of this God. They, they, promised, they were promised that their eyes would be opened and they'd have what they want, but they didn't get that. What did they get? They got a death. Remember back in chapter 2, 17, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, they didn't actually die. Or did they? They kind of did. You know, death, to understand death, as you read the scriptures, it, it's broader than just the stopping of breath or the stopping of the heart. The death in the scriptures is, is a disintegration. It's a, it's a disordering of how God has intended things to be. He intended things to be this way. We have disordered them, and death has come and brought about a disintegration of his original design. And this is what we see in the consequences of sin. We see them in the death of a relationship. A number of relationships, actually. Our relationship with ourselves. Just how we understand our self, our identity. Notice, when they sinned, they were filled with shame and guilt, and they tried to cover. I'm trying to help us understand the experience we have in life through the lens of Scripture. I don't take and understand Scripture through my experience. I take and understand my experience through Scripture. And, and we all feel this guilt, this shame, this covering. People that fail, people, all of us are broken, and we want to cover, we want to hide. Now, we may cover and hide through alcohol or through relationships. We may go more the religious route of covering for ourselves and our failures by doing more Bible reading and getting in more uh, church attendance or in ministry. We may cover through success in business. We want to cover our own brokenness. We look at ourselves, we may hate ourselves. We don't like who we are. We're not who we thought we ought to be. We haven't achieved what we wanted to achieve. And so we've got to cover. And we cover through all kinds of... You know what I'm talking about. All of us have secrets. All of us have things that we don't want anybody to know. We all know the shame and the guilt that leads to putting up walls and facades so that no one really knows who we are. This is the result, the experience we have in this shame because of sin. But not just our relationship with ourselves, our relationship with God. Uh, think about this. You know, they were with God. They enjoyed God. I mean, God is a good creator. Everything he does is good. You can't be afraid of that. He's good. And yet they hide from him. They're scared. They run and hide from him. He's a terror to them. The one who made them, the one who gave life, the one who gave gifts, the one who gives provisions, the one who gives peace. Now they're hiding from They're terrified. He's a terror to them. He's hell on wheels coming after them. They're running and hiding. They've got to get away from him. They were drawn to him. Now they're terrified of him. Don't we feel that way? Isn't it funny how even a Christian, you know, we can fall knee deep into sin, and then we think, I've got to clean up again before I go to God. We run. We're scared of him. We're angry at him. People that don't even believe him will blame him for stuff. We don't like him. We're at enmity with him. There is now a major wedge between us. And we all, we've all experienced that. 
but not just a relationship with ourselves, a relationship with God, well, relationship interpersonally. I mean, look at the marriage. When, when Eve was brought to Adam, what did he do? He gave this glorious poetry. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Now what's he doing? He's kicking her to the curb. He's blaming her. The woman you gave me, well, he actually blames God first. The woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit to eat. I mean, he's turning on her. He's supposed to protect her, love her, serve her. He turns on her. She turns on creation. You see this massive disintegration of these relationships. So, so when you think about the consequences of our sin, and you know this, right? I mean, you don't have to be a Christian here to understand the shame and the guilt that comes from not doing what we're supposed to do or not living up to the potential we thought we had or not living up to the expectations of somebody else. And there's that shame and that guilt. Now listen, some of us have shame and guilt that is not due directly to our, from our sin. We may have had a, a father that abandoned us. We may have had a, a mother that was always a drunk and embarrassing us. We may have been affected by the sins of others, and there's a sense of shame because of our relationship with them. I grieve for that. That's not what I'm speaking of directly here. It's still associated with the sin, but, but you're bearing shame from the sins of another. I just encourage you to go to God and ask for help and grace to walk through that well. That's a difficult thing still associated with sin, but not yours. But most of us, all of us, have our own guilt and shame associated with what we've done. We do cover. We do hide. You know it in relationships. You know, when you don't let this out, or you manage this conversation, or you say it this way about how you engaged in a situation just so that you don't look as bad as maybe you came off looking so th this is this is understanding why we have life while we have it sin brings shame and this kind of shame brings distance right because when we feel ashamed we back away we create a little space we do this with god no doubt you know we're just not going to talk to him for a while until i can build up a little kind of a, a few deposits of doing righteous things, and then I'll go back to him because then I feel a little bit better prepared to see him. Or, or relationships. I talk to many people. Yeah, I haven't talked to my brother in 10 years. Yeah, I haven't talked to my folks in years. You know, sin enters, shame comes, conflict, anger, bitterness, and that, that separation occurs. And we just don't talk to him anymore. This is the fruit of sin. This is the consequences of it. But don't misdiagnose the problem. Don't think, well, he's just that way. No, please don't do that. Because we're misdiagnosed. There's nothing worse than a misdiagnosis. It gets the medical team going in a whole different direction. They need to be hunting over here, and now they're over here. We can't. And here's the problem, because sin kills us. It doesn't kill us like it takes our breath away. It just slowly kills us. That's what John Owen says, you know. We ought to be killing sin. If we're not, it's going to be killing us. It's killing our relationships. It's killing who we are. It's crushing our identity, our identity in God. So, so you see the, just the wicked consequences. You, you see the tragedy of sin. They wanted to be like God. They went after being like God, and now they're bearing the fruit of it, this slow disintegration of who they were meant to be. But notice then this judgment comes in, picking up in 14. 
And what's interesting about this is it's a different kind of courtroom scene, right? You don't see attorneys in a jury box and a, a you don't see any of that. You don't hear attorneys making arguments and rebuttals and objections being made. There's no evidence being presented. There's no exhibit A and exhibit B and exhibit C. There's none of that. There is one judge, God, and he sits before them and brings and renders a judgment. He doesn't need any exhibits. He doesn't need any evidence. He knows all things, and so he just renders judgment. And you see what he does here. In 14, he renders judgment to the serpent. He says, because you've done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. This has been fodder for countless discussions. I don't know that we need to see that there was some anatomical change that he once walked and now he crawled. He could have easily just used the serpent as it was in its distinctive way of slithering on the ground. And that became the picture of reminding humanity that God has judged. It's kind of like the rainbow. The rainbow in the sky is is loaded with meaning to display to us that God will never again judge the world with water. It's up there. It's just a reminder. So he judges the serpent, and then he judges the woman. He brings judgment upon the woman in two areas. One, giving life, giving birth. There's pain now attending that. What was to be joyous, bringing forth life, is now attended with great severe physical pain and the pain and the difficulty and the sorrow that it is raising children but not just that there's now distortion in this relationship there's a vying for control there is a tussle and conflict in the marital union the curse he brings to the man is on the work it's work itself is not a curse we've seen that in the last two sermons but there is now work that's attendant with toil so they ate of the fruit leading them into sin. Now it's through the consequences of sin that they'll continue to eat. So he, he brings judgment on the work, the toil, the difficult. We know this. I mean, to do anything is frustrating. Just get a honeydew list. I, I mean, Carol will ask me to do things. She says, how long will it take? That may be half an hour. She walks away, the first time I heard her under her breath say, and a factor of five. I said a half an hour, it will take me two and a half hours. There is nothing easy about working in this world. There are difficulties. There are reminders to us that this world is not functioning as it's supposed to be. But he just doesn't bring judgment to work, he brings judgment to the earth. He curses the ground, it's not going to produce thorns and thistles. I don't think they were created because of the fall, but I think they operated as a perennial threat to us, making it difficult to subdue the earth, that the, that the ecology of God's creation has been disordered. We now have difficulty, weeds, struggle with controlling, subduing the earth. We have hurricanes, tornadoes. I don't mean to ever say when TV preachers try to explain why those happen, they're way off base. Don't even listen. But I will say this, that they are a reminder that the earth is not as it's supposed to be. They are evidence that, in fact, things are not as God intends them to be, and they're not as things will be. That man won't bring it to flourish as intended. 
because of sin. And then you see the final judgment, which is the banishment, right? In 20 to 24, they're banished. They're removed from the garden. They've lost paradise. Can you believe? They've lost it. It's gone. And they've lost the presence of God. The most vital relationship we have for joy and happiness and satisfaction in life has been severed. We've been removed from the garden. There's no way of getting back. We're now in this new world. You know, when you look at the judgment of God, it reminds us that we don't live in a morally neutral universe. We just think we're out here, and as, as long as nobody's hurt, and as long as things are consensual, there's no moral valuation of what we do. As long as, it, hey, your truth is your truth, and, and as long as no one's hurt, that's good. The word sin is, of course, you know, it's only seen on a, maybe on a menu, for some dessert, but you don't, you don't hear it, you don't see it. Sin has been replaced by the word evil. Evil's more abstract. It doesn't have that moral value to it. And, and so we really, nobody can say what's sin anymore. Well, let me tell you, this is not a morally neutral universe. And you know it as soon as your name gets trashed, or your house gets ruined, or your property gets stolen, you become very moral very fast, and you expect certain things to work in a certain way. You become very moral. That's not fair. That's not right. You know justice. You know injustice. You know right. You know wrong. You know good. You know evil. And while we try to neutralize everything, we can't. We need judgment. I mean, don't look at this and be embarrassed. Oh, the Bible's always talking about, don't be embarrassed about judgment. God has a right. Listen, sin brings disorder. God's judgment and justice brings order. We need this. We see cities now that want to remove judgment for crimes. Is it helping? No. You remove justice, you encourage anarchy. We know we need justice. Even kids know we need justice. You don't even have to be an adult. Even Disney knows we need justice. In The Lion King, when Scar goes over the cliff and he's wounded but not dead, and then the hyenas come and finish, they eat him alive. Are the kids saying, oh, give him another chance? Or, no, we've got to do more educational reform here. They want justice on, on Scar. Nobody's crying about it. Nobody's saying that's unfair. Nobody's saying that's too much. The crime doesn't fit the punishment. No, they see it is demanded. For order and right. We need it. We need it. So, so, so here you have in Genesis 3, you have a tragedy that occurs. You see the consequences being walked out of the nature of their sin. And then God brings judgment. So what do we do? Here we are. They're in the wilderness, right? They're out of paradise. So think about it. The Adam and Eve... The, the clouds are darkening. It's getting darker. The wind's starting to blow. The temperatures are getting cooler. They huddle together, but they're hating each other. They're marked by conflict and darkness and strife. Where's the hope in this? Doesn't that seem more like our experience than the first two chapters? It does to my experience. I think it does to yours. So where's the hope in that? They can't get in. There's no recovery. There's no going back and knocking. I'm really sorry. I, let me try again. There's none of that. We're supposed to feel like we've got no hope. We're just going to live and die out here in this experience. But there's hope. 
Oh, there's always hope. So thankful for God. You see just a thread of it in 3, 9 to 11. Look at it with me. He says, but the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now, Anybody, I think, even in elementary school, understands God is not lost. He didn't lose them. He didn't know what happened. I was over there, and all this thing went to a handbag. And I, I, God is not unaware. What's he doing here? It's interesting. Satan uses questions to bring doubt. God <clears throat> uses questions to elicit repentance. Where are you? I'm coming for you. He's on a search and rescue mission. He wants to seek and to save the lost. He's coming to them, bidding them to just throw up on. This is everything. I wanted to be like you. And, and I, I did everything you asked me not to do. I'm so sorry. He, he's asking them. He's calling to them. This is the story of the whole Bible. It's a search and rescue operation. That's why Jesus said when he was with after Zacchaeus's house. Listen, the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. Jesus is on the same rescue. You don't have to clean up to go to God. That's the point. I mean, for all of you, all of us, even if you're a Christian here, repentance isn't something you kind of do a self-clean first. It's just going to God. God, I'm sorry. You've been a creator to me, and I defied you. So you see the mercy of God here. But you also see the provision of God. Look at me in 20 and 21. He says, The man called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Listen, they clothed themselves, but we are unable to cover our own sin. We're unable to clothe ourselves, to endure in this world. God brings about a provision. He's not done with them. He didn't destroy them. He clothes them. He prepares them. <clears throat> he, he gives them what they need to live in this life. You see the provision of God in kindness. And this provision that he gives us is seen in a promise. It's most clear in the promise that he gives to us in verse 15. Theologians call this the Proto-Evangelium. This is like the first announcement of the gospel. Look in 15 with me. He says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And what do, what do we make of this bruising of the heel and bruising of the head? Well, I don't know exactly, fully. It's cryptic, no doubt. But it might be simply this, that the bruise to a heel is not mortal. It's not fatal. But the bruise to the head is. A bruise to the head will bring about, the word can also be translated in Hebrew, crush. The crushing of the head, that's fatal. I think he's saying that the seed of the woman is going to crush the seed of the serpent. The one who brought and instigated the curse and the destruction and the paradise lost, the one who sowed the seeds, he will be crushed for that <clears throat> by the seed of the woman. Now, what's the seed of the woman? Well, seed, semen, means son. It's used that way throughout Genesis. High water mark of the seed is seen in Abraham. That Abraham's seed would bless the nations. God has a rescue operation for the nations. Not just for us in Western culture here. For the nations. 
And this seed is going to come from Abraham. But then it hits another high water mark in 2 Samuel 7. The seed of David, the son of David. So this son of Abraham, the son of David, this son that will come will crush the one who brought about, instigated all the curse. Now, it's not surprising that when Matthew begins his gospel, he starts with the genealogy. We're going to see ten times, and these are the generations of in Genesis. Matthew, good Jewish writer, says, boom, these are the generations of Jesus. He's the son of Abraham, he's the son of David. He's not just picking those two names out because they were big names. He wants our minds to go back to Genesis. Jesus is that seed. Paul makes this abundantly clear in Galatians. We've just gone through the book of Galatians. And in chapter 3.16, we read these words. He says, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Same seed. He says, the scripture doesn't say into seeds, meaning many people, but to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. So Paul is helping us connect the dots. He's saying this Christ, Jesus, is the Messiah that was the seed promised to crush the head of the serpent. To bring about a way. We can't go back in, but God sent one from heaven to save. We cannot save ourselves, so he sent one to save. Just as a tree led to the ruination of man, so a tree will lead to the salvation of men. So he says in 13, he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. He's, Jesus Christ has come to deliver us from the sin and the shame and the guilt, the burden, the covering, all the stuff that we do. He's come to become for us sin, that he might bear the curse of God. This is the Christian message that we are in a place of wilderness, not able to go back and reconcile and fix. So God sent one to us to both deal with the problem of sin that he might forgive and restore and redeem and reconcile us back to himself so that we can go back to be with God. This is the Christian message. So yes, we live in this world of darkness right now, but one has come to save. So when you get to the end of Genesis, you're just on the edge waiting what's going to happen. And these promises are kind of given in cryptic form. So we go into Genesis 4 with his mercy and his provision and his promise to save. And we're going to trace that out as we go through. But let me be candid here. I mean, if you're here and you're not a Christian or you're thinking about it or young, you've been raised in the faith, but you don't know where you are in it or you've struggled with faith, you're doubting the goodness of God because of the trials in your life. Listen, until we are reconciled to God through Christ, we will live with guilt, shame, the sense of burden, the desire to cover. We're going to live that way. You're going to live that way. You're going to try all the avenues of peace and joy that offer you happiness, and they will not satisfy. You will remain restless and unfulfilled. You won't be satisfied. You may attain all, you may meet all the marks of your desires in business and family and life and pleasure and money. You won't be satisfied. There is no way on this earth you'll be satisfied in the things of this earth. God has made that certain. Until you find a rest in Christ. You know, Aldous Huxley wrote these words. I, I love it when atheistic or non-Christian writers and scholars write truth that we are advancing. He says in his book, The Doors of Perception, he says, 
Most men and women lead lives at the worst so painful and at the best so monotonous, poor and limited, that the urge to escape, the longing to transcend themselves, if only for a few moments, is and has always been one of the principal appetites of the soul. We want rest. We want what we had. And it is not surprising to us that Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are heavy laden and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm humble and gentle of heart, and I'll give you rest for your souls. That's the rest we have. But for the Christian here, and I call the non-Christian, repent. The judgment is real. This is true. We're called to respond in faith and repentance. But for the Christian here, I'm calling you to rejoice. To rejoice that one has come from heaven to save. That we can never make our way back, but he has made his way to us, to seek and to save us. Rejoice over that. Shed the shame. Shed the guilt. Give it to Christ. Look at, he's the only one worthy of your absolute admiration. No one on this earth is. Only he alone is. When you look at, you know, Robert Murray McShane, I said, for every look you take at yourself, take 10 of him, take 10 of him, look at him and rejoice in him. You know, Thomas Watson was a great Puritan in the 17th century, and he says two problems he has with ministry. One is trying to help the unbeliever feel sad over his sin so that he can rejoice over the grace of God. The other struggle he had was helping the believer to rejoice over the grace of God and stop looking at their sin. I hope you can rejoice. I hope you can find that here in Genesis 3, the declaration of why we have what we have, and yet he's come through with grace, with mercy, and provision. Let's take a moment and just ask God to, to minister to us. Ask God to bring healing to your hurt, to bring admonishment to the idleness of your soul. Ask God for grace, and I'll pray for us in just a moment.